0: Where are all the kids at today? All right. Uh, so, kids, I have a question for you. Who knows who Thomas Edison is? The first person who invented the light bulb. That is exactly right. Does everybody know that? Well, you guys know it now, right? Who is Thomas Edison? What did he invent? Uh, the, light the light bulb. All right. Does... Uh, Does everybody also know who Miss Jen is? She's over there waving like crazy. She's my wife. Uh, And kids, she has this this weird ability to uh, kind of force me to go to the worst museums in, in a city. And one time, when we lived in Louisville, Kentucky, she made me go to this place that was called the Thomas Edison House. Is, right, Thomas Edison is an important guy. He invented the light bulb, which we use all the time. And so she wanted to go there to find more out about his life. But if you know anything about Thomas Edison, you know that he was born in Ohio. He grew up in Michigan, and he did all of his inventing in New Jersey. So the question is, what did he do in this tiny little house in the, near the outskirts of downtown Louisville, Kentucky? What he did was worked at a place for a couple months, and while he was there, he got fired for spilling battery acid on his boss's desk. That's pretty much it, right? So he didn't do anything important there. He just did something kind of silly, and then he went on and lived somewhere else and then did all of the important things. But they have this house there because he's famous, and they can trick people into spending money to go through this house uh, and think that they're going to find out things about Thomas Edison. But... If you were writing a book about Thomas Edison, and all you knew about Thomas Edison's life was what happened in that house in Kentucky, how much would you know? A lot or a little? A little, right? And you wouldn't even know the best parts, right? Because the best part is that he invented the light bulb, right? All right. So, like that, what we're going to talk about today is that if we want to know about all of Jesus' greatest accomplishments and all that he did and who that he is, we want to make use of all the information we have about Jesus, right? Not just one small bit. And what I'm going to tell you today is that I think that if we just limit ourselves to the New Testament, it would be kind of like trying to know all that we can about Thomas Edison by just going to that house in Kentucky. Because, right, there's this whole other half of our Bible And it tells us a whole lot of stuff about Jesus. And so kids, you guys live at a pretty awesome time right now. There are things like the Jesus Storybook Bible and the Big Picture Storybook Bible and uh, the Action Bible. What's the Kevin DeYoung one? The Biggest Story. can't believe I couldn't think of that one. These are awesome kids' Bibles. When I was a kid, we didn't have any of that stuff. We had Bibles with hard to understand stories and lame pictures. Now you guys have people who are, who are taking the Bible to explain it to you so that your parents can teach you more, not just about the New Testament, but also about the Old Testament. And so kids, I would encourage you, as you're reading those stories with your parents, ask your mom, ask your dad, say, what does this story tell us about Jesus? Don't just read the old story and, you know, think it's cool that Noah took a bunch of animals on the ark, but do that and then say, hey, what does this tell us about Jesus? What can we learn about Jesus from these stories in the Old Testament? And ask your parents to do that with you, because what we're going to see today is that when Jesus wanted to correct some misunderstandings from his disciples about who he is, he took them to the Old Testament to teach them about himself. So ask your parents that. Uh, Don't let them get by with not answering. Tell them you want to know about Jesus, and it's their job to tell you. All right, Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under the chairs, and today's passage in those Bibles is on page 885. Again, that's Luke chapter 24. Now, as you're turning there, uh, I'd imagine that you might be a little confused because you all showed up under the pretense that we were going to start a sermon series on the book of Isaiah today. Uh, and we are, but we're starting with the book of Luke. And this is going to be a different kind of sermon for us, because anytime we've gone through a book of the Bible, we haven't done an introduction sermon. Uh, and on Isaiah, we're actually going to do two. We're going to do part one this week, part two next week. And the reason why is because Isaiah is different than any other book we've gone through. First of all, it's huge. It's 66 chapters long. That's at least twice, uh, if not three or four or five times longer than the other books that we've gone through as a church. And so this is a big book, so it's a lot more important for us to understand what it is that we're getting into, and why we're getting into it, and how we're going to go through it. So that's what we want to accomplish over the next two weeks. Today, I'm going to focus mostly on the why and the how, and that's to to tell you why we're going to take time as a church to go through this giant Old Testament book that's hard to understand and has parts that you're just going to be ready to to get through so we can get to the good stuff that's at the end. and we're also going to talk about how we're going to do that. How are we going to go through a 66-chapter uh, book? And I'm going to go ahead and tell you now, the answer is not we're going to take eight years to do it. Uh, we're going to do it faster than that. So Luke 24, this is a passage that tells us why we are going through the book of Isaiah. So I'm going to read verses 13 through 49. And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in, the last day, in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped... That he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And he said to them, O foolish ones! So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed them and broke it and gave to them, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for his spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. you sent your son into this world so that these events that we've just read about could take place. That he did live among these disciples. That he did die in our place. That he did rise again on the third day. And that he appeared to these two disciples and taught them about who he is from your word. How we pray this morning that you would help us to learn from this account that you would help us to benefit from it as a church, and that we would see that by going through a book of the Old Testament, we can learn so much more about who your son is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. God, I thank you for your word, and that it's one of your many gracious gifts to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so this passage tells us why. This passage tells us why we are going through... Uh, the book of Isaiah as a church. And what we see in this passage are four four key things. The first three things have to deal with these two disciples and their kind of misunderstanding of Jesus. And the the fourth one is Jesus' correction of their misunderstanding. So at the beginning, we see that there's a problem with their direction. So these disciples, Luke tells us, were on the road to Emmaus. They were going to this village that was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And so you might wonder, what's what's the problem with that? Why is it strange that they're going to this city that's outside of Jerusalem? Well, it's strange because if you read the the Gospel of Luke, once you get to chapter 9 in Luke, it becomes all about the city of Jerusalem. It's all about the fact that Jesus is going to go there. So he tells his disciples that he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. He tells them that he's going to go there and he's going to suffer and die. He's telling them again and again and again about what's going to happen to him and the fact that it's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. So these disciples have been in Jerusalem. They've seen some of the things that Jesus said would happen to him in Jerusalem happen in Jerusalem. And now we see and we read this story about them that they are losing heart that they are losing faith, that they're uh, giving up on the hope they have that these things have happened, and so they're leaving town. They're moving away from the city where Jesus said that all of these things would take place. The next problem that we see with them is their description of Jesus. So if you look down at verses verse 19, Jesus, appearing to these guys, kind of quizzes them. Right? What are the things that have happened about me? They say, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet so to them jesus is past tense he was a prophet now it's not bad that they call him a prophet because the old testament said that there would be a prophet like moses that god would rise up and jesus identified himself with that prophet and so it's not bad for them to say that he's prophet but it is bad for them to assume that he's done his ministry is over he's in the past they move on to say that he was mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. All of this is a pretty good description of what Jesus did. But here is where we see their misstep. Verse 21, they say, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So they've lost hope that he is the one who he said he was. Throughout Luke's gospel, Luke is making clear, Jesus is making clear to his disciples that he is the Messiah. He's revealed as that. Peter confesses that, and he says, you're right, I am the Messiah. But now, these disciples, because of what's happened, because Jesus has died, because he was crucified, and he hasn't risen again yet, at least to their knowledge, they've given up hope that that's who he really is. They no longer have faith that Jesus is who he says he is. They also failed to believe that the resurrection had taken place. the universe verse 21, they say yes. And besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. What they're doing there is they're referring to what Jesus said. Jesus said that he would rise on the third day. And they're saying he didn't do what he said he would do. Even though they know some women went to the tomb early in the morning and they saw that it was empty. He wasn't there. They came back and they told the disciples what had happened. The disciples went. They verified the tomb is empty. He's not there. There were some angels who said he was alive. But these guys still don't believe that that's what happened. And so they're leaving town. They're running away because they've lost faith. They've given up their hope. And Jesus graciously comes to them on this road and corrects their misunderstandings. They announce all of this to him. And how does he respond? What does he do? He rebukes them. He says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So, the question we got to ask ourselves here is what is he rebuking them for there? What do they fail to understand? What do they fail to believe? It's right there. Fail to believe all that. Who spoke? The prophets. This is crazy because Jesus very easily could have said, I told you what was going to happen. You didn't believe me. But instead, he points back to the prophets and said, You're not believing them. You're not trusting all that was said about me that that was going to take place. So he's correcting their lack of faith in the Old Testament. And then it tells us, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted them all in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus meets these disciples who no longer trust that he's who he says he is. They no longer believe that he's the Messiah. They no longer believe that he's going to rise from the dead. They no longer believe that he's going to do all the things that he said he was going to do. And so Jesus wants to correct their misunderstanding of him and he takes them to the Old Testament. That's huge. He doesn't point just to what he said. He doesn't point just to his teaching. He points to everything that was written about him in the Old Testament. There's these two verses, verse 27 and 44, which we have, I think, side by side on a slide. It's at the end, Neil. There we go. These two, this is what he did with the guys on the road to Emmaus, and then when he appeared in the presence of all of them, this is what he did with all of them. So the first one, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The second one, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What's important about this, especially verse 44, is that Jesus is referring to the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible is the Old Testament. It's just laid out differently than ours. Same books, just in a different order. And it's called the Tanakh, which is an acronym, T-N-K. And it stands for Torah, which is law, uh, Nevi'im, which is prophets, and Ketuvim, which is writings. So when he says the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's talking about the three parts of the Hebrew Bible. He's talking about the Old Testament. And he's saying... Uh, everything written about me in the law, in the prophets, in the psalms. The psalm is the biggest book in that last section. So it was often uh, referred to for the whole section because it was mostly just the psalms. So he's pointing them to the Old Testament and he's interpreting it to them saying, it speaks about me. Everything written about me in these books must come to pass. So he's what he's doing here is he's deleting them in a Bible study. And it would have been amazing to be there, right? If if we think about, you know, how should we understand this Old Testament passage? Wouldn't it be great if we had someone who was the person that it was about that could teach us everything we know about know about it? He, He could just come and he could say, "All right." Let's go through Genesis. This is what Genesis says about me. This is what Exodus says about me. This is what Leviticus says about me. This is what Deuteronomy says about me. Uh, This is what Numbers says about me. Again and again and again and again and again. Just explaining to us all that we need to know about him from all of these books. Because I think that you'll agree that the reality we see in our lives is that if we want to learn about Jesus, what we do is we go to the New Testament. But when the New Testament authors want to know about Jesus... They went to the Old Testament. They went to all these stories that to us are boring and hard to understand and these books that say these weird things to learn about the one who came into the world to redeem us. And so that's why we are going through the book of Isaiah. Because Jesus himself says, these books are about me. They tell about me. They prophesy about me. When he wants to correct his disciples' misunderstandings about who he is and what he came to do, he went to books like Isaiah to do it. And so if we want to learn more about who Jesus is and what he's done, we should not limit ourselves just to the New Testament. We should go to the Old Testament too because they are just as much about him as the New Testament is. And if we don't, we're just missing out. So we're going to take a long time to go through a long book uh, so that we can know more about this Savior who came into the world to redeem us. Because that's what Scripture exists to do for us. It exists to tell us more about who he is and what he's done for us. So he goes with these disciples. He teaches them about himself from the Old Testament. And this is why we're going through the book of Isaiah. And the reason, just to give you a little more explanation for what I think this will accomplish for us. When we hear people talk, when we watch movies, when we read books, when we listen to music, we have this thing in our brains uh, which is like an interpretive framework, which I know you all know exactly what I mean when I say that. Uh, It's like a net. If If you think about a net or a grid, we have this thing in our mind that when people talk, things stick in those nets and we understand it. So right now, this whole time, I've been speaking words in English, and you all speak English, and so you understand the words that I've been saying. Those things stick in your net, and you interpret them as I'm talking to you. We don't really think about it. It happens very, very fast because we're so used to doing it, because we do it all the time, Anytime we communicate with anyone or anything. But if I said, To a un grand pamplemousse, Anybody got that? In French, that is, you are a large grapefruit. And those of you who know the French language, that's stuck in your net. You, you knew what it meant. Or, or to give you a different example, uh, the movie Shrek. Uh, there's this scene where they're like walking through the forest and this super slow-mo kung fu battle takes place between Shrek and uh, these merry men. And if you've seen the matrix, you know that what's happening in that animated scene is they're referencing the matrix. If you haven't seen the matrix, you see that and you think, oh, that's cool, that was kind of funny. But the person who's seen the matrix gets more information stuck in their net. And so as we read the Old Testament, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take the net that we use to interpret Scripture and move those lines closer together so that when we come back to the New Testament, when we read the Gospels, we'll understand more of the references that they're making. We'll get more stuff stuck in our brains and think, oh my goodness, he's talking about what Isaiah talked about. That's the goal. That's what we want to happen because... As that happens, what's going to happen to us is our love for God and our love for His Word and our love for this grand story that He's unfolding across 66 books and thousands of years will increase our affection for Him. It will make us marvel at the grace that God has shown us by orchestrating this plan of redemption on our behalf. Specifically in the book of Isaiah, What we're going to see is we're going to see these people who, like us, deserve nothing but judgment. And yet God promises that there's this king that's going to come, and he's going to bring his judgment, but he's also going to bring redemption. He's going to be this one who isn't just a king, but is also a servant who suffers on behalf of his people, who bears their punishment, who takes on the the judgment that they deserve. And does away with it so that we can be white as snow. Yeah. That's why we're going to the book of Isaiah. And so I want to talk just a couple minutes about about how we're doing this. Um, Actually, before we do that, specifically why Isaiah. That's kind of why we're doing an Old Testament book. There's a quote here that kind of gets at why we're doing Isaiah. This is Jerome. He's a guy that in the the 4th century translated the Bible into Latin. He said about Isaiah, he should be called an evangelist rather than a prophet because he describes all the mysteries of Christ and the church so clearly that you would think he is composing a history of what has already happened rather than prophesying about what is to come. When he uses the word evangelist there, he's not talking about somebody that shares the gospel. He's talking about somebody who writes a gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are known as the evangelists because they wrote gospels. Isaiah is often described as the fifth gospel, and it's because of what Jerome says. He says it's it's more like he's writing about things that have already taken place because of how clearly he describes the thing that Jesus does when he comes. Uh, there's another guy who said uh, that the book of Isaiah is uh, kind of the Old Testament theological equivalent of the book of Romans. So if you think about how significant Romans is in the New Testament, he's saying Isaiah is like this. This guy named Barry Webb says, if we want to understand fully who he is, that's Jesus, and what he came to do, we must read this book. This book is Isaiah. What these guys are saying uh, is that Isaiah is one of the most significant books in the Old Testament. And if we want to know more about Christ in the Old Testament, why not start with the biggest, most significant one. Uh, It's the fifth biggest book in the Old Testament, and it's quoted in the New Testament second. The only book that gets quoted more than Isaiah in the New Testament is the book of Psalms. So Isaiah is very, 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 very important. Uh, And because of that, I'm looking forward to going through it so much. Uh, The word gospel, which we use all the time. The reason why we use that word all the time is because when Isaiah was translated from Hebrew into Greek, the word good news got translated gospel. And then when the New Testament authors were looking for a word to describe what it was that they were doing, they picked up that word that Isaiah picked up. Before then, it was just common. It was just like our word good news. So this morning, I came downstairs and I said, Jen, I've got good news for you. And then I told her that, uh, that Man United dropped points this morning, which is really significant for Liverpool. She, as you can imagine, didn't care about that good news nearly as much as I did. But when I say something like the good news of Jesus Christ, you know that I'm talking about a very different thing. That's what Isaiah did with the word gospel. He took it from being just a general word that meant good news to meaning God's good news of redemption. And that's why we use it as much as we do, because when his Hebrew prophecy was translated into Greek, that's the word they used. So I'm looking forward to going through it, but I also have to tell you that I'm not. A couple weeks ago, I think I sent Matt a text or called him, and I said, what was I thinking when we decided to go through the book of Isaiah? Because as I started studying, I thought, this is going to be... A nightmare to preach. It's going to be really hard for us to teach her. It's going to take forever. There's parts of it that are just just depressing and boring. I listened to a guy who their church was uh, it's 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, and they've been in Isaiah for about 43, 44 weeks now, and they just got to Isaiah 40. And this lady in this Q&A, they said, she said, what would you say the theme is of Isaiah 1 through 39? And his answer was stick your head in an oven. It's like, there's no hope. It's just depression. And so we're going to get to spend many weeks there. I think, obviously, that guy was, was overstating it. It's not, it's not all bad. There are great, great parts of it. And so uh, because this book is so long, the way we go through it is going to be different than other books we've gone through before. Normally, we kind of pick a pace, As we're going through a book, like big sections, small sections, and keep that through the whole thing. This time, we're not going to do that. Some parts, we're going to fly through. So, next week, we're going to be talking about Isaiah 1 through 5. I don't mean verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1, I mean chapters 1 through 5. The reason why we're doing that is because chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah are like an introduction to Isaiah. They summarize the main themes of what Isaiah's prophecy is about. So, we're going to come. Uh, next week, and we're gonna talk about those five chapters and about what we can expect to see as we go through the book of Isaiah. Uh, other sections, there's one section of Isaiah where it's just like judgment after judgment after judgment, passage after passage after passage, page after page after page of judgment. Judgment on this nation, judgment on that nation, judgment on this other nation, judgment on this other nation. I'm gonna take this nation, I'm gonna use them to judge that nation, and then I'm gonna judge that first nation again. That's what it's like for many, many chapters. And so when we go through those chapters, we're not going to take a week to talk about God's judgment against Babylon and take another week to talk about God's judgment against Philistia and then take another week to talk about God's judgment against Moab because you would all feel like you feel right now. Uh, Instead, we're going to take one week and we're going to talk about how God is going to judge these nations, what it tells us about who God is, what it tells us about who they are, and maybe look at some details of each judgment that he pours out on those nations. But then when we get to passages like Isaiah 52 and 53, where we learn about God's suffering servant who dies in our place, we're gonna take some time and we're gonna slow down and we're gonna dig into those verses so that we can understand more about what Christ has done for us. And so there's parts we're gonna fly over, there's parts we're gonna dig in because we have that privilege to study God's word in that way. Uh, At BC, We believe that the steady diet of the church should be expositional preaching. What that means is that the main thing in the text is the main thing in the sermon. Sometimes we're going to get to that main thing by looking at one word in one verse. Sometimes we're going to get to that main thing by looking at five chapters in a book of prophecy. But the point is that we want to see the main thing in the text be the main thing we talk about. Um, because that's what expositional preaching is. It isn't word for word, it's not verse for verse, it's not book by book. It's making the main thing in the text the main thing that we talk about and praise God about. So that's what we're going to do as we go through the book of Isaiah. Now, I recognize that that might be a little different for some of you, um, to to do like five chapters at once on a Sunday, you might think, oh my goodness, we're just completely blowing uh, through God's word. We're disregarding it. We're not taking it seriously. And so if you have questions about how we're going to go through the book of Isaiah, if you have questions about why we're going through the book of Isaiah, uh, I would love to hear them. And you can even ask them right now. Because it is a huge book and we're going to devote a lot of time to it. Are we going to read? Yeah, no. (laughs) We're not going to read the whole book next week. But I would encourage you to read the whole book. Uh, In big chunks, too. So if you've got time, sit down read the book of Isaiah. Because the more you read it, the more you're going to understand. And the more you're going to get out of it as we go through it. Um, And it won't take as long as you think. All right. The first question was, "How long do I think it will take?" Um, I think it will take a while. Right now, uh, right now, I, I, we plan to be through the end of thirty-nine by Christmas. So the first half we're gonna we're gonna run through in parts, um, but the back half we're gonna slow down through. And like is really, it's uh, one of the really neat things about the book is a lot of scholars will look at Isaiah and they'll say, like, it's not all written by the same guy. Some of them will say there's two, some of them will say there's three, some of them will say there's like five Isaiahs. And they want to break up the book and cause all this division. And one of the main reasons why is because if you read Isaiah 1 through 39 and then read Isaiah 40 through 66, you think, how is this the same book? Because the first book is all about judgment and the the second half is all about comfort, But what we see at the beginning of Isaiah 40 is that Isaiah gets kind of a a second calling. Uh, And when we get to Isaiah 6, we're going to hear that God calls Isaiah and tells him to go out and announce judgment that people aren't going to receive. That's his ministry. Go out, announce this judgment, no one's going to receive it. And then when you get to Isaiah 40, he comes along and he says, Speak comfort to my people. He changes, God changes Isaiah's mission. And that's why the book takes that drastic shift at Isaiah 40. Because the judgment has happened and then God calls Isaiah to come alongside his people and proclaim this comfort to them. So it's one guy who gets these two totally different ministries. And it's through his ministry that we get this great picture of the gospel in the Old Testament. And so this first part where he's just proclaiming judgment again and again and again, we're going to go fast through that. But we're going to sit in the second part. And so the plan is to be through the first half by Christmas and then maybe take through the end of next fall to go through the second half. So maybe by Christmas next year. I think there's something like 50 to 60 sermons planned now. But normally that gets longer than shorter. Uh, the second question, uh, wait till we get there. <laughs> Any more questions? All right, as we, as we take the Lord's Supper today, I mean, I get that this is a different kind of sermon where it's more just information about what we're doing than, you know, a passage with specific application. Um, I think the application from this, from this sermon is read your Bible uh, because it is a gracious gift to us about what God has accomplished on our behalf. Even as we're celebrating the Lord's Supper today, this is something we do every single week. It's something we do because it was commanded to us in God's Word. It's something we do to remind ourselves again and again and again of what Christ has done on our behalf. Uh, It's because we want to benefit from the grace that that regular reminder is. And as we talk about going through this book, what we're trying to do, is we're trying to increase the, the things that we have at our disposal to increase that reminder we have of what he's done. We don't want our understanding of the gospel to, to be stagnant. We don't want our appreciation of who Jesus is and what he's done for us to be stagnant. We want that to keep growing and flourishing. We want to increase our understanding of who he is and what he's done. And because of that, we need to go to a book like Isaiah, So we can learn from a book that's normally very difficult for us to understand and in a a section of scripture that we might not read that often. So we're going to force ourselves to do that so that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, week after week after week as we go through this book, our appreciation for what Christ has done on our behalf increases and grows and flourishes. And so as you celebrate the Lord's Supper today, uh, I would just encourage you to, to not allow it to be routine for yourself but to think again about all the grace that God has shown you in Christ. That it's it's part of his plan to redeem you and to save you. And he's been carrying that out even as early as the book of Isaiah was written, even as early as the foundation of the world. He was orchestrating these things on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you inspired your people to write down your message for us that in it we find out about who you are, and your great holiness and perfection, and we find out about who we are, flawed and sinful and rebellious people. And yet your word doesn't just tell the story of judgment. It also tells us about redemption, that you sent your son to die in our place, to bear the judgment that we deserve, so that we could have a relationship with you, so that we could live the life that you call us to live, so that we could be the creatures that you made us to be. God, I pray that as we celebrate again the Lord's Supper, that you would stir our affections for Christ. And as we go through this book as a church, that you would just keep doing that week after week after week, that we would see the beauty of the gospel recorded in a book long before the events ever took place. Pray now that you would send your spirit to move in us and to enable us to celebrate the Lord's Supper rightly.